What's up and welcome back to Nostalgia Pod. Once again, giving you your weekly look at what's going on in pop culture. My name is Pat Sheehan with my co-host Dave Martin Swagger. What to do, baby? Ayo, fun guy. How you doing <laughs> this fine Tuesday? I'm good. I'm excited to talk about all the good content. We got lots of interesting musical projects that came out this past week. A couple of TV shows we're going to be talking about as well as another Pixar classic. But first, before we jump into any of that, if you're watching on YouTube, hit that subscribe button. Go to soundcloud.com slash nostalgiapod and subscribe to the podcast in all the ways you like to listen to it there. And if you don't mind, go to iTunes and give us that five-star rating and review. It really helps us out. Also, go to twitter.com where you can follow all of our tweets and stuff that we don't talk about in the pod uh, at nostalgiapod. We're going to start today, though, Dave, with Someone who's pretty much dominated 2019 so far with a song that actually came out in late 2018. We talked about it on the podcast. Old Town Road by Lil Nas X has been sweeping the nation. Probably, what, the most popular song that came out this year by far? Oh, I mean, easily. It, number one in the country for the 12th straight week. That's the only the 20th song to even have that long of a run. The longest since uh, Despacito back in 2017. So it's been a while that song has been this ubiquitous. Lil Nas X, I mean, very underground, uh, just just 18, hadn't really put out even a lot on to SoundCloud at this point before the song blew up. So we finally got his first EP, Seven, coming out this past Friday. What was it, only eight songs, two of which were Old Town yeah. Road and the remix of it. <laughs> so really, only seven songs. What did you think of this 19-minute project from this young star yeah I, th- I think it's incredibly complicated it really depends on how you want to look at it and as you said because he's i guess easily the biggest star to rise out of tiktok like he started out as a meme old town road is still a meme but was a meme first before it actually became a legitimate song and we talked about the genre classification of it with the country charts before check that out youtube.com slash nostalgia pod but yet now as we said He's established himself as a musical force at the moment, and he was just on BET Hip Hop Awards. That's what this image is from. And it's like now, now what do we make of it? Because this is a pretty quick uh, turnaround. You know, you have a, you have a, a big number one hit followed up with a project. You know, Cardi B, for example, took a lot longer to release an album after Bodak Yellow, for example. But what do we make of Lil Nas X with this EP? And you know, ultimately, I think it's successful because it's giving his fans what they want. It's genre blending music made for the masses you know it's like the new the new sound of pop music so i think because that's what made him famous he's trying to replicate that again i think there is enough here to do that you know and whether this will this formula will last forever for him is a different conversation but i think for right now this was uh, good enough what about you yeah i mean it's incredibly shallow which is the, the big knock against it there's almost like no substance here except for what maybe family i don't know it's just that all Lil Nas X was trying to do with these seven songs is really find something else that could catch a little bit of, you know, ride the wave of Old Town Road. And I think a couple of songs here have the potential to do that. And I think they're good enough where they're they're just catchy enough. He definitely has, you know, a, a knack for melody. It, it's just, it's fun. Like these songs, you don't take this project very seriously. And I think, I think the shallowness comes from one, he's a very new star and he is a 
he's 18 years old. I mean, he probably doesn't have a, a lot to say at this point. Well, I think he's 19 now. Let's not shortchange the man. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. So he, he just, he, he's still finding, I think, what his voice will be. And it makes sense yeah. that right now these songs are going to sound like they're just trying to be what Old Town Road was. I do give him credit because unlike some other uh, stars that have, or rap stars, I should say, that have attempted to go into rock or use rock as a vehicle for some of their songs. I think he actually did it in a bit more of a genuine way than, say, someone like, I don't know, Lil Wayne. There you go. <laughs> and sure. I think he actually even did it better than Cuddy did in, in his early attempts. Mm. So, yeah, I, I give him some credit for that. What, what songs off this stood out to you or that you liked? I thought the the rock song sounded fine. They're definitely my least favorite stuff on here of the new stuff. Again, only mm-hmm. like six it's new songs, really. But you know, Ryan Tedder's involved in one of those. Travis mm-hmm. Barker, you know, it's like it, it's it's a little boilerplate. You know, it's fine. Mm-hmm. But because he's dipped his toes into this, you might as well keep going with that. I guess fine. But I think the clear standouts for me were Panini, which was the sing- second single now and released that right day before the Holy B and Closure. You like the hmm. second the last track those are two of my favorites i thought panini he definitely did not try to make that country at all that's just very like travis scott-esque i think that song uh, yeah. just sounds really great and unintentionally interpolated nirvana uh, in bloom specifically which is just hilarious it kind of speaks <laughs> to the generational gap between himself and anyone who was actually listening to nirvana in the early 90s and whatnot just hilarious and then closure you know that, that there's like a little dance a little dance beat to that i think that song even though like it might be kind of a weak hook. I think it just, again, it just sounds good and it's catchy. And ultimately, that's all he was going for with this. You know, I think Columbia Records and him, they just kind of partnered, gave him some, some producers and be like, hey, not Mr. Mr. X, like, let's just, let's just ch- chase some more streams. And he's joked about this on Twitter and he's very much online and he's aware yeah. of that. People, people will, I mean, like Pitchfork gave him a pretty, pretty rough review and he uh, like quote tweeted it and just kind of clowned on it because that's what he's going to do, you know? So mm-hmm. ultimately, I think those those songs particularly are my highlights and I think they kind of are like the best path forward for me. Like I thought Rodeo, the Cardi B feature was, was cool. I think that's more legitimization than anything else. Mm-hmm. I don't think the feature is actually that great on its own. But yeah, th- those songs I think are, are decent enough. What about you? Which ones did you like? Yeah, actually, I mean, thinking about the moments I'll probably remember, Panini stood out as well. And I did like Rodeo, not so much for the Cardi verse, which is fine, but just that drop, you know, where like the, the beat finally comes in. It's just really like a moment. Uh, I've already seen people making memes out of it, like characters dancing to it and stuff. So just those things that are going to like catch the internet and drive his stardom forward. I think that could be one of them. I wasn't as much of a fan of Closure as you were, but I do think that... You know, any of these songs are are made in a way where they they could potentially catch on, except for what probably bring you down. I'd say maybe not. Mm-hmm, definitely. But yeah, Lil Nas X. I don't think he's going to be going anywhere. I think we'll be hearing from him very online, like you said. One last note: uh, Rodeo is one of two songs produced by Take a Date Trip, who most famously produced Mo Bamba. And actually, if you listen to Rodeo, the chanty moments of the non-cardi sections of the song definitely will give you a Mo Bamba vibe. So I know. Friend of the show, Adam Mahawk, actually made that note and before he even made that producer connection. So that that's uh, interesting. And I think those are probably the biggest producers on here on like the hip hop side. So I, I'm actually just very curious, like, will he pick a direction of which he introduced several on this brief EP? Or will he continue to just do all kinds of weird shit? And if it's produced well enough with the label support, it probably will be. Is that good enough? Like, well, I'm just curious, will his fans, and again, there's tons of them already, Will they be happy if he 
being a hodgepodge of sorts. You know, we'll, we'll see. Again, he's very young. A duo that isn't as young, the underachievers, man. We talked about them last year with After the Rain, which we, we panned a little bit. We weren't so high on it. I think our main criticism, if I'm remembering correctly, was mostly that the music was just very middling. Like it didn't have a ton of energy. We didn't we felt like they didn't really know which direction they wanted to go in with the album. And for that reason, it kind of came out very mediocre. Lords of the Flatbush 3 came out this past Friday, and I'm a lot more impressed with this album than I was after the rain. Before I jump into why, I was wondering, what was your just initial uh, temperature on the album after listening to it? As you said, I think the reason we didn't really like After the Rain, and I've been a UA fan a long time, heard all their stuff, and After the Rain stood out for being really their first project of any kind to really try and be a much more lyrical project. Not to say they haven't had lyrics, they've always had good bars, and that's certainly the case now, but farming out some hooks from guests, which is pretty uncommon for them, and making more moodier songs, as the title might suggest, uh, was definitely a new direction for them, but as you said, I just didn't think it landed. So Lords of Flatbush 3, third in a Flatbush series of tapes they've had, and it's definitely a course correction of sorts, but it's really just getting back to what got them all their fans in the first place, which is just this fucking Brooklyn heat. Like, these guys have rapid-fire flows and lots of bars, and they can rap really fast and just make fucking hard-ass songs. Once again, this I don't think this stands out the way a lot of their projects haven't as, like, a great project, but you always can take away a banger or two from mm-hmm. just about every UA project, and I think that's the case once again. But what uh, impressed you more about this, considering After the Rain was really your first, like, f- full dive-in pre the Beast Coast album, of course? You know, if you listen to some of their older stuff, which I did prior to After the Rain just kind of go back to it it reminded me a lot of their sound on uh indigoism which is you know obviously gold soul theory or herb shuttles were kind of like the the two big hits off that and it sounds a lot like that where they just went back to these like harder beats they were coming you know flying at you with all these uh, really crafty verses and like you said I, i don't think they're ability to spit a verse ever really dropped off but just the way that they were delivering these songs and what they're going for in them i just preferred this underachievers more than the kind who are making this moody it sounded very actually thinking about after the rain now almost like more pop oriented like they're i think we talked about how they were trying to almost like become a little more mainstream with that and i think going back to what they do best was just a great move yeah absolutely and it's it's interesting because since after the rain of course we had the beast call sound which we reviewed and mm-hmm Issa and AK are only just a small part of that, obviously being a duo out of this bigger collective. But there are some moments on uh, Escape from New York, the Beast Coast album, that you see them trying new things. I think Issa in particular really stood out on that album to me, like Snow in the Stadium, for example, was a you know Jamaican-Caribbean-reggae-inspired mm-hmm. song. And you hear Issa using that kind of inflection and delivering a, a flow. You, know, you never really heard that from him, right? And then you have also, you still get the bangers that we always expected from them on songs like Distance. Uh, Can't You Talk, I Speak Guapanese is probably <laughs> the most fan favorite of all the bars off the Beast Coast album. So I was kind of expecting them to get back to this direction with this tape. Again, it, it's coming out pretty pretty soon. It's like, what, a month after the Beast Coast album? So yeah. Maybe they could have saved it a little bit. Again, it's less than a half an hour. I guess it's just they just wanted to put it out. That's cool. They are doing the tour, so they just have more songs to pick from, I guess. But yeah, like again, I, I don't think this stood out to me as like the big leap that we've always wanted you to take. But it's more back to the basics that they've been very good at for you know almost a decade now. So, did you have any songs that stood out to you with that in mind? I really like Debo. I thought that was a really good yep. track. Also, the one right after it, No Detectives, I thought was pretty catchy with the hook. And also, Tokyo Drift stood out to me. I really like that track as well. 
Which ones stood out to you? Yeah, I, I also like Debo. I think Debo and maybe even Stone Cold as well, uh, which were the first two singles. Those songs just stand to me as at a UA, like a solo UA show when they're just playing t- just as just as the duo. Those will just like be in the rotation now because those songs will sound great live and like most of their songs do. I also really like Pax. The funny thing is Pax is actually a single they put out as a Lucy back in 2017. Obviously been a fan of that for a while. Nothing that I think Easton in particular has always stood out as being a little more versatile than AK. But his he usually does most of the hooks, and his ability to just have different flows, I think, really stands out. And even if a lot of their verses ultimately probably sound a little similar, if you listen to Lords of Flatbush 3 and you're not really paying attention, it'll just kind of flow really, really fast for you. It's I think it's just more of what the fans like, and that's certainly good enough because I think they, again, as I said, the Beast goes out and gave them a little more room for experimentation. So it's cool just to uh, flood the zone once again for the hardcore fans. Underachievers returning to form after a, a bit of a disappointing 2018 album with Lords of Flatbush 3. We listened to the new Mannequin Pussy album, Patience. I wasn't really too aware of them. I uh, went back and listened to their discography, and it was actually pretty interesting to hear where this Philly punk rock band was when they dropped their first album back in 2014, Gypsy Pervert GP yep. on Spotify. And then Romantic two years later, and now Patience uh, three years after that. This is a band that seems to be really finding their stride and really finding their voice. And Patience, I think, is probably, I don't listen to a ton of punk rock, but this is probably my <laughs> favorite punk rock album of 2019 uh, pretty easily. And not only is this an album that I think is a pretty interesting commentary on abusive relationships and all of the kind of issues and topics related to it and surrounding it but i think it it's a really uh like a coming out for this this philly group that uh, i feel like is going to have quite a future in the punk rock and probably just the rock scene in general moving forward it actually kind of reminds me a little bit of listening to Parquet Courts last year. Um, not ah. necessarily in terms of style, but just in terms of where this band is at. Um, sure. Parquet Courts a little bit more established at, the, at that point in their career, but how did you feel about Patience from Mannequin Pussy? Yeah, so I also just ran back the whole discography, especially once I realized, oh, wait, their other two albums are like 20-something minutes. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> Very easy to yep. do. Um, and also, like you, I certainly don't listen to a lot of really any uh, contemporary punk rock music. So take what I say with a grain of salt for sure. I only really have what I bring from like classic, you know, 80s and 90s stuff, I guess. But I thought GP and then Romantic, I don't want to say it felt like unfinished what they were sounding like, but no, sure. it sounds too negative, but it just felt like they were still kind of finding themselves. And what really stood out to me initially was I just did not like the vocal mix really at all. And like, the, the, it, it's very punk rock. There's, like lots of drums, like really hard drums, right? And like that energy is there throughout all these albums. But I just, I, I feel like the vocals just didn't get there for me initially. So it's really kind of hard to really like grasp a lot of these songs for me. Uh, but then on Patience, as you said, quite dark if you really try and listen, yeah. listen and dive into that. And definitely fits the jam jamming nature uh, of the instrumentation. So even though it's not, my, my, my genre of choice, it just kind of stands out because it's, I think Patience, they finally, again, this is again my, my very brief introduction to the band, but they finally seem to have kind of got that mix right of uh, the song, the singing with the instrumentation, and of course the lyrics continuing to evolve as their mm-hmm. story has continued. So very, very interesting. And I agree. I think 
uh, the future is cert- certainly uh, quite bright. I mean, if you look at their their Spotify, I mean, they, they don't even have any song. They have one song with a million streams. Like they're they're, they're yeah, very romantic. very nascent uh, group in the national consciousness. So it's it'll be interesting to see just how big they can be. Uh, there's certainly not a lot of punk rock on the mainstream festival circuit. I wonder if that'll change because this this lead up to this album did get a lot of press online, you know, attention, and mm-hmm. they're now on a new uh, label, Epitaph, which is still independent label. So I'm not sure how big they might get grow off that but be very interesting and i'm i'm quite curious even if punk rock in 2019 is not uh my first my first go-to what about you (laughs) no i want to kind of circle back to what you were saying about their last two albums gypsy pervert specifically sounded to me like i mean there were a lot of tracks on there that were under a minute just some really like jamming kind of just capturing that punk rock vibe but I'm not sure if the way that the sound was mixed in general, but also that you know the instruments were arranged made much sense in terms of getting across the point of the song. And maybe there wasn't a point. I can't. I'm not inside their head. I can't say that for sure. But it, it did sound a bit like just a mishmash of things. Not really like there was an idea there. Where patience comes in is there is there's a focus. They obviously kind of figured out I think how to use the drums and both the guitarists really effectively. Um, and I think let me just find her name here real quick. Uh, Marisa Debbie's the the vocalist and also uh, the she's a guitarist on this album and for the band in general. I think her voice shines through so clear in this in terms of what what the point of the songs are, what she's trying to get across. It really just feels like this is a band who has been honing their craft for the last couple of years and is finally like, all right, this is what we've been working up to. You know, th- I think there's a lot of songs off here that are really good, but I feel like the first half in particular, basically from the first track to High Horse, are just really, really strong. You know, specifically Drunk 2, uh, Cream, and Fear and Desire. That like three, three run uh, song stretch is really, really strong in my book. W- what song stood out to you? I, I agree. I think ultimately cream drunk two drunk one probably my favorite ones uh, mm-hmm. what also jumped out to me when listening to the early stuff was just they have some really funny uh song titles like meat yeah. slave things like that very and again <laughs> it fits fits the aesthetic it fits the the death metal waters they dip into at times i guess so good for mm-hmm. them they definitely feel very authentic but yeah i know i think um ultimately it, it, did, it did blend a little bit for me but i think that's just because i'm not really used to hearing drums this hard that often <laughs> Yeah, but I, I thought I thought it sounded good front to back, which is uh, I think half the battle when you're making music that is uh, explicitly not for the mainstream. Sure, High Horse also a song that I think really stood out to people for the content. I think mostly and kind of the ending of it, where you know she's talking about this abusive relationship with this guy, and at the end she's like on uh, her high horse, you know, walking away from this like burning scene. Just very like metaphorical. Uh, the imagery is very clear, very strong. Um, I'm really impressed with this album, and uh, I'm not sure if it'll make an end of year list for me, but I'm I, I think it'll probably be in contention. So one I definitely want to revisit in a couple of months to see if it has that lasting power for sure. If you want to check out a couple of songs from the albums we've talked about, plus the one we're about to talk about, go to our Spotify playlist, Nostalgia Best of 2019. Hit that follow, because we're definitely going to be adding a couple of Rockin' Tours albums on here. We've talked a lot about Jack White's solo career, uh, Boarding House Reach, <laughs> which came out last year. Ooh, <laughs> that that was quite the Weird album. One. Jack, Jack White rapping, not something I think many people wanted. Now he's back with the Rockin' Tours. The last album was 2008's Consolers of the Lonely. Before that, Broken Boy Soldiers. 
it's interesting. So I know you went back and listened to the Rock and Tours to kind of get a sense before you listened to this album. What was your just overall take on on them as a band? Well, I definitely liked the sound of the Rock and Tours much more than the sound of uh, Solo Jack White pre Boarding House Reach, which of course is much more jarring, really mm-hmm. like anything else he'd done before, electronic influence, as you said. But like Blunderbuss Lazaretto, the mm-hmm. post White Stripes Solo Jack White stuff. Never really did much much for me, and despite the fact that he's obviously been a master guitarist on basically everything he's been on, but like hearing Broken Boy Soldiers in particular, which also does predate uh, Blunderbuss by six years, so he, it makes sense he changed. But I gotta say, like that's probably my favorite rap album, rap, rap rock yeah. album I I've heard in a very long time. Specifically, like that came out in 06. I really was struggling to come up with a rock album that was newer that I actually liked more. And I didn't like concerts only quite as much, but I still think like those guys just fucking rock and they rock in the yeah. way I've always liked because they sound a little more old school just in the way they, they they sing and they mix in the guitars and obviously it's still it's hard hard shit the whole time. So I was a big fan. Then hearing Help a Stranger, again, I don't like it as much as the first one, but still sounded really great. And I just, you know, I like to hear more traditional hard rock once in a while because just you know and even if it this gets into more like jammy i don't know like what garage rock or um and they get they slow down in sections too but it just i think it's just it's the type of rock music that you don't hear that often especially from uh the big bands that are still around so very refreshing for me but i mean sure. obviously you've been a raconteurs fan a long time what did you <laughs> think because you know it's it's certainly it's not really a, a jack white solo outfit nor is it a white stripes outfit it's very much its own thing that jack white's just a part of so do you think it delivers on that promise you know as being one of the one of the side projects sure um yeah you know what i really like about jack white with the rockin tours is it it gets him into a sweet spot of his guitar ability which is blues rock which i think he just does fantastically i mean he's a he's a pretty big nashville guy if i'm correct and and detroit as well um but when he when he taps into that that bluesy side of himself i feel like that brings out some of the best guitar work that he does as well as some of his best songwriting and while i think some of the topics on this album i don't know a bit off-putting just because he's so anti-technology and that was a, a lot of what was on boarding house reach was just how like basically like a black mirror album in a sense um it's, it's not as smart as it thinks it is. Right, exactly. And it just feels very old. Um, I I think when Jack White gets around the rock, the rest of the rock and tours, he just taps into something that uh, he really th- uh, thrives with. And I think the best example of that for me um, is there's two songs, Some Days and Now That, now that You're Gone, I feel like, are just yep. two of the strongest tunes on here. And not only is it... Um, the songwriting but just the overall crafting of it you know like like that thumping at the end of now that you're gone where it's just the the kick drum is like fucking awesome um and obviously jack white even when he's at his worst is still an amazing guitarist and that doesn't change here but where he picks and chooses to deliver those solos i feel like is so much more affecting than on a lot of his solo stuff so something about being part of the rock and tours just really i think brings out the best of him what other songs stood out to you, or, or what moments did you like on this album? I feel like Now That You're Gone as well. Yeah. A song, yeah. I think it's the last song we added to our 2018 playlist, because it hey. was a, an, early, an early single, but mm-hmm. it still fucking goes hard now. That's definitely my favorite one. 
And as you said, like, it's just really nice to hear Jack White still be able to like recuse himself from his, I don't know, personal insecurities, whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. Um, And like, we have like tech woke Jack White can still, you know, deliver it, deliver in this fashion. It's good, you know, and as someone who's incredibly famous, incredibly connected in the music industry, like he's, you know, cross genre in terms of the people he he, he hangs out with and, and even works with. So it's just great to hear him. I don't want to say get back to 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 what he what he does best because it's 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 not quite exactly that, but it just it's just uh, refreshing to hear him still deliver. Absolutely, uh, given how long he's been in the game. So I love it, love it. One last song I wanted to highlight was just "Shine the Light on Me." Um, it's like a piano ballad, and I feel like it has this really awesome ending where Jack White's just basically like playing the piano and screeching um the, the title of the song uh really really awesome moment um definitely recommend this rock and tours album and again check out our spotify best of 20 uh nostalgia best of 2019 playlist to check out the songs on that that we liked some some good albums that we talked about this week uh which is always nice and some good tv as well let's start with euphoria zendaya Ooh, it, man my first question is either i'm just a major lame or my high school was a major lame or if this is how high school is now it's fucking wild bro (laughs) i had a similar observation uh and i was kind of reflecting you know we've gotten the modern high school portrayed a few few ways differently book smart this Mm -hmm. show of course across the pond on sex education we've got a lot of like 2018 2019 gen z high school experience right and i really just think it's just even if it's even if it's not quite as extreme as portrayed in these these shows and movies, it's just different. Like there's a different yeah. generation of kids in high school right now. They all have smartphones. That was certainly not the case when we were in high school. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just it's just much more a liberal atmosphere. If, you know, like this, the, the students. I don't think students are just as policed in in big schools. You know, and I think I got a little bit of that in my high school experience, but. It's, uh, it is interesting to see, even if it's being o- very over-dramatized. But um, I-, I had a similar uh, thought race through my head, for sure. <laughs> yeah, so I guess before we, we jump too far into it, we'll be talking a little bit more about those crazy moments. Euphoria, a show on HBO with Sam, uh, showrunner Sam Levinson, based on an Israeli series of the same name, which was created by uh, Ron Lesham, Daphne Levin, and Tamira Yardeni. Starring Zendaya uh, and a lot of other younger actors, uh, as well as Eric Dane, who you might know as uh, McDreamy from Grey's Anatomy. Uh, don't ask me how I know that. Wait, I thought McDreamy was Patrick Dempsey. He's someone else? There, there's so many McWhatevers on that. McSteamy, uh, maybe he is? Uh, um, yeah. Okay. Yeah, something like that. You'll but, notice we don't have any Grey's reviews on the channel. <laughs> you can you can stop watching if, if that bothers you. Imagine if we reviewed every season of Grey's Anatomy. Uh, uh, I don't yeah, know Nick if that'd Dreamy be good. Is is uh, Dempsey? Patrick Dempsey. I was right. Yeah. Nailed uh, it. <laughs> wait, check out check out what, what Eric Dane is though. Pull Eric. that up. Anyways, as you're looking McSteamy. that up, yep, you got McSteamy, it. Yeah. <laughs> so, Anyways, this show is incredibly stylish the color palette of the show the the, the shots the the setting is all like, pretty breathtaking actually um you know especially there's some moments where scenes are influenced by 
uh, drugs that were taken by the characters within the scenes and there's a lot of really interesting um, animation with that but it also tackles so many heavy topics it's kind of crazy i mean just within the first two episodes and we're reviewing the first two uh we missed the premiere last week we have drug addiction we have mental health issues trauma death of a parent uh, pornography sexuality abuse neglect assault sexual assault i mean that's <laughs> and i'm probably missing a couple in there yeah pretty crazy yeah man and i, I think to that uh, point about the the visuals of it all and i guess even exploring many themes sam levinson who pretty nascent as a, a director a showrunner but son of barry levinson as you might guess he his feature film debut was last year that was assassination nation and that was a film that i shared my thoughts on last year and i thought it had a lot of interesting ideas and it definitely had some cool visuals but didn't really work and him bringing his sensibilities to euphoria combined with the partnership and presence of a24 television this is their first uh, scripted show they've done with hbo you can definitely tell that the, there's a pedigree behind this show and even if it, it, is, it is an adaptation as you said it definitely seems like there was an intent to explore a lot of things which we'll get into but also just make the show incredibly engaging that even if these explicit moments or wild scenes aren't exactly what you want to see for a show about high school kids it's really hard to take your eyes off the show yeah whether it's something as obvious as like drug trips or just the everyday like it is it is looks looks fucking great yeah and i think that's also important because most of the show is uh unknown you know unknown actors especially to the hbo audience i mean zendaya Mm -hmm. is quite famous and it's certainly a change of uh, gears for her given that she came up as a Disney star and is probably most well known right now for I don't know being a online force as well as part of Spider-Man at the moment but this is definitely a, a statement of 10 on her part as well to shed that label quickly and, and that branch off in her career something we've seen you know Ariana, Selena Gomez, all the Disney Channel, all the Nickelodeon stars they, they all do at some point but it's just Kind of cool to see her do this before, like I think what she's twenty years old. Like she's she's quite yeah. young, but a, a lot of a lot of thought clearly went into this 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 show. She's twenty two, by the way. Yeah, it, to to your point about you know making it engaging. So even if what you're watching is uh, not something you want to watch, it, but you can't stop. I found myself that way, um, kind of in the second episode a lot of the time, especially. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's uh, moments where Nate. Um, who's played by uh, Jacob Elordi. Um, a lady. Yeah. A lady. Elordi. Where he is like beating the absolute living shit out of this guy whose house he broke into. Um, and yeah. He's basically like telling the guy like you raped somebody when that wasn't actually what happened at all. That I was just like, this is appalling. But like the way that it was filmed, the way that uh, Elordi was so menacing in that scene, it was really uh captivating um mm-hmm. you know watching the the scene with the, the drug dealer where zendaya and um angus cloud's fezco which side note fezco and angus cloud in general looks a lot like mac miller it's almost kind of uh, and, and i he's not he's, yeah he's been on the brain just a lot recently but first of all fezco is an awesome character but that that whole scene was very much like almost like a yeah. horror film the way it like was shot and like led up very uh scary i guess fentanyl in episode two hope you're ready <laughs> <laughs> well i mean it, even in the first episode they they show zendaya 
passed out from a drug overdose. Um, yep. Pretty heavy stuff. It's it's really engaging. I wonder how it's going to do ratings wise because I could see, like you said, for HBO, this isn't necessarily the the demographic that would be maybe searching for a show like this. Yeah. And that it's funny you say that because there's been some hubbub recently about HBO using weird qualifiers to say that the show's a big ratings hit, even if Nielsen is a little more modest on. I think it, I think it's doing quite well, you know, like a few million viewers, but it's certainly not a HBO smash per se. It's certainly not as high as I, th- I believe Succession got to by the end of that 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 run last year. But the whole controversy of of it all, which again we can we'll get into. I almost felt like it just really missed the plot because it's like kids don't fucking watch HBO. They literally never have. Right. Like ki- ki- kids have Netflix subscriptions. They'll soon have Disney Plus subscriptions. They like to go on streaming, but kids don't dive in and go through HBO. Like it's just not something that happens. Yeah. And like I just thought it was like the stupidest non-controversy to talk about, you know, a show depicting teenagers with lots of penises and drugs. Like it, again, <laughs> this is a show that was really meant. It's meant for adults. Right. And even if like the kids that are are might might get something out of this commentary on the world they occupy in a certain sense they're not going to figure that out until they're a little older like right. that's just the way these shows are made so man it's it's very it's a very interesting show and i think the ratings are definitely a part of it but i mean as you were saying with uh everything really with Nate in episode 2 the show did a great job of and then the drug dealer scene just great job at just building dramatic tension and kind of keeping you guessing and even if we're not seeing anything that's like super super crazy i i suppose like you know it's a it's a it's a drug deal it's a it's a attack like it's nothing we never seen before but it, it really keeps you guessing and and i think that's uh the fact that it's already doing that two episodes in uh keeping you on your toes in that way while being super engaging for what it actually does show you uh gets a lot of points for me so i'm very curious to see just what exactly they are shooting to uh, achieve, because we can sell, we can tell the ambition is there. So, like, what, where is, where, where are we headed? Is what I want to see. Yeah, it, that that's a great question. I was thinking about like, what do you, what I feel like the overall message of the show is. Um, like you said, this is a show that it's about teenagers geared towards adults. I mean, even within like the first, I think the first ten seconds, they t- Zendaya's character talks about how she was born three days after nine eleven, and. I, I don't know if a lot of children in high school, potentially, uh, or a lot of young adults in high school are thinking about the time that they were born, how that impacts their worldview and their experiences that they have. Maybe. I I can't say because I think it's definitely a more thoughtful generation than, than ours was and a more open one. Um, but yep. it's, it's going to be interesting because there's so many different topics that they're talking about. And so many things that they could touch on at this point. Um, I think it's going to be hard for them to land every single one and whatever point they're trying to make with every single one. But I think it seems like an overall message is going to be the destruction that all these different vices can can have on the psyche of someone this age right now and at this point in their life, you know, especially 17 going to 18, this transition. Mm-hmm. Um any characters or or yep. moments that that really have stood out for you? I think obviously Rue Rue stands out. She commands majority of the action. But I think my favorite part about what they're doing with her character right now is that Zendaya is giving lots of like voiceover narration 
regarding scenes she's not actually really in. And that's a, I think it's an effective way thus far to move the plot and kind of keep the threat, keep the threads going, whether that's done to like avoid shock value moments and whether it feels empty down the line, I can still see that being the case. But right now I like the way they're using her to just kind of move things going like uh, uh, the, the pornography uh, bit from episode two, for example, I think the way she kind of just explains how it spread through the school is a quicker way to uh, keep the show moving. Cause honestly there, there is a bit of a deep ensemble of, of of young adults yeah. quite quickly. So like I still don't know all the names, I'll be honest. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> but they're clearly setting it up to be around Zendaya and uh, Nate and uh, mm-hmm. Zendaya's friend who's now Jules. talking to Nate inadvertently. I forget her name. Um, Jules. So I think th- those are the three that I, I think are the most uh, most interesting. Yeah. But we'll see if any of the other su- the supporting characters get big enough moments to stand out. Yeah, there's an interesting thing just going on Wikipedia because I wanted to get all the uh, actors' names uh, for Jules, who Jules. Uh, yep. is played by, uh, let me just find it here, Hunter Schaefer. Uh, she's described on, uh, the character is described as being transgender on yep. Wikipedia, which I, I don't remember being, you know, being talked about on the show yet. Um, nope. which seems like it'll be another interesting topic that will kind of come to light. Obviously, uh, her relationship with uh, Nate through the text or this chat app uh, and yeah. Nate's dad also is going to be probably a pretty interesting mm-hmm. subplot. <laughs> a, a really funny moment I had in episode two was when Zendaya uh, was talking about taking drugs and she's like, you know, it's not good to say, but drugs, they're kind of fucking cool. Like, <laughs> I just, like, laughed out loud at that because it's, like, such a blunt way to, like, state this thing that you that she knows that she shouldn't say as a character. And then that whole scene where her and Jules, you know, took the drugs and, like, they have all the colors and and they, they see, like, this, like, trip almost in a sense, I thought was really, really well done. Um, also, the whole party uh, that they had at the end of episode one I felt was really gripping especially when Nate uh, corners Jules then she like pulls the knife out and has her whole moment where she like cuts herself um, pretty interesting stuff there so uh, if you haven't watched Euphoria yet I would say catch up and keep up with it because I have a feeling it's going to be garnering a lot of attention as more and more pretty hefty and shocking moments come out of the season yeah, I'm expecting more from uh, Storm Reed, who plays uh, Gia, Zendaya's younger, Rue's younger sister in the show. Obviously, Storm Reed's a bit of a rising child star right now, so I would assume she's going to have some big moment coming. Um, also, it's, she has second billing on Wikipedia. Uh, Maud Apatow, Judd and Leslie Mann's uh, daughter, plays Lexi, who's like Zendaya's friend who, from growing up, they kind of separated and like she pissed for her in episode one, like... She hasn't had a whole lot going on, like really just a, a handful of scenes thus far, but it feels like she has more coming. So I, I think there's great potential that this could be a really impressive uh, ensemble where they uh, everyone gets their due. It's just a question of, as we said, like, is there an overlying message? Will we get there in a way that feels satisfying? And even if it doesn't, the show's really great to watch uh, Just and even just look at. So I'm actually not really that worried, regardless of what happens. <laughs> Yeah, I think similarly uh, to Euphoria, Legion um, on FX, uh, just a, a season three premiere last night, 
obviously directed uh, and show and the showrunner Noah Hawley's kind of in charge of everything with this. We don't necessarily watch Legion the same way I think you can watch Euphoria just for the moments. We watch Legion for the weirdness and for the the style and just being a part of this <laughs> this strange world that's so fun and interesting to be a part of. Um, and I think this uh, season three premiere last night, obviously the final season, uh, really leaned into that weirdness and there's always been kind of like a 60s overtone to the show you know especially in terms of like costumes and and it almost seems like time period as well uh but they really leaned into the the psychedelic uh aspect of the 60s in this one where uh you know dan stevens who plays um god why don't i david holler david um, holler is almost like the leader of like this 60s s cult uh ran by lenny who is uh, i don't know what is lenny at this point just like <laughs> chaos bad person i don't know yeah <laughs> it's hard aubrey to explain plaza. yeah aubrey plaza who is you know throwing 110 miles per hour is always on this show um and it was almost it, it was one part like the story about a cult and this other story part the story about switch played by lauren Tsai, who appears to be a major character for this season uh she can her power is that she can time jump um you know turn back time and her quest to find david and to team up with him and to join his team um really really interesting episode uh with uh, i thought an amazing first 20 minutes of, of switch trying to kind of find david what did you think of the episode as a whole? And then maybe let's talk a little bit about what we're hoping for with this last season of Legion. Yeah. So I, again, I thought it, honestly, I think it's the best Legion premiere of the three seasons. Mm. And I mean, the visuals have never faltered. That certainly didn't, didn't change now. It looks awesome. And just the originality of a lot of, a lot of visuals always just stand out to me. Like the way they communicate a time travel through these doors with, yeah. units of time on them really just a smart way that obviously probably is like a genius level thing from a tv production standpoint a, a way to cheaply communicate that but it looks awesome and kind of just fits the overall way of the way they present abstract things mm -hmm. physically literally for the characters i've always liked that about the show um but what stood out to me uh obviously about this this kind of feels like a bit of a course correction in terms of the criticisms a lot of people had of season two. While it was still great to look at and the acting was still superb, of course, the plot just felt very listless in season two and direction just wasn't clear about where we were going or if there was even a point. And that's belabor's ground. I don't have to go back into that. But I feel like this premiere, season three premiere, effectively demonstrated that David is clearly the bad guy. We know mm -hmm. what happens after the great season two finale and the rest of the people we've come to know are going after him seemingly to kill him. I'm sure that'll change or get tweaked as we go. Farouk is still present uh, yep. with them, which is still mind boggling that he's just with the good guys now. Yep. Um, and so we don't certainly don't believe he's a good guy, but they've clearly established uh, uh, the plot for this season mm -hmm. and whether they commit, whether Holly committed to it and actually, tells the story as this literally remains to be seen, obviously, but I just like that they kind of just very quickly established uh, where we are and perhaps where we are going. 
while yeah. still having all the normal strengths. So I like the premiere a lot. Yeah, Dan Stevens has a lot to do as David in this because, uh, like you said, he's clearly the villain, but he's also been the protagonist for the sh- the whole show. So he's, I think, still uh, very liked by the fans, even if uh, the way season two ended maybe positioned him to not be so likable. Well, like you said, Farouk uh, being part of you know th- this team is like uh, part of the good guys. This absurd in so many ways but um i think i think that's the thing the show does really well is it it gives you a lot of unexpected even if sometimes uh maybe a bit telegraphed but still like these unexpected team ups and and things happening like when the uh when the team came in and killed david in at the end of the episode or i guess in the middle of the episode i did not see that coming at all and I also thought he was going to like totally, even after he lost his arm and they had put that thing, I said, I thought he was totally going to just to like demolish them. And then Sid comes in and kills him and switch turns back time and goes and tells him. And I was like, wow, that was one. It was kind of like the beginning of Avengers in a sense. Like when they just go and they kill Thanos, like the first 10 minutes. I mean, bring it back even a little bit. The source material is X-Men. It's days of right. future past. True. Yeah. Good, good call. But it's, it's just such a a fun show to watch and there's so many weird things going on. It's just, uh, I, I really enjoy this show, even if it's probably, uh, you know, season two obviously had a lot of, had some issues and we talked about that, but it's still just always pleasurable. Even if the episodes are listless, you're like, wow, that visual is cool. Like you talked about the way that they depict ideas is cool. Um, and I really like a lot of the characters on this show. I mean, um, Sid got very little screen time, but I really enjoy her as a character. Um, you know, we have uh, just this whole bevy of people. And in the upcoming episodes, it seems like we're going to get a lot of um, David kind of exploring his own past through Switch's abilities. And I'm really excited to see when he meets Professor X, played by Harry Lloyd, Viserys Targaryen. Um, later on in the season and kind of what that encounter will be like. So I feel like that's going to be fucking epic. What do you expect of this season? Oh, I, expectations. I, again, I really don't, I don't know how you can really have any. Uh, I, I just, I, I, I hope that we get some kind of uh, finality of a, of a sense. I, I just, and again, that is the, the, the promise of this premiere just gives me hope that, there might be a little more plot than season two. So again, could very well change, but I'm just looking for just some kind of bookend to David's arc. Obviously his arc is the most integral to the show thus far. I'm sure Sid will be very much involved with that. Um, and Lenny as well, but I just don't want it to like kind of just end and people be like, that's it. Or like, mm-hmm. or uh, I wanted more. Obviously it's been a, a talking point recently with a lot of shows ending this year, notably Thrones, but you know, and any anything just to give it any kind of finality and you know if it's an fx show john landgraf there's a lot of credit for letting this show exist the way it is, in the form it is you know mm-hmm. yes marvel tv helps produce the show no Holly's attached and he has a relationship with fx but it's not like a, a ratings juggernaut or anything you know mm-hmm. so i have a feeling that just creatively they don't they really give any notes at all they just be like yeah do whatever man final season <laughs> yeah. go for it so do you think? I, I hope. I hope it's what Holly Holly wanted to do, and I hope he had a, a good plan for a good idea. This came out a little over a year after season two ended, so it was a pretty quick turnaround. So, 
we'll see. I mean, do you have any thoughts on where you want it to go? Yeah, I, I mean, I definitely want to see finality for David. Um, I also definitely want to see what the whole deal is with Farouk, um, which I know you mentioned when we did the review, but uh, shout out to... Um, Man, I lost my place again. N- Navi David Na- yep. Nagabam, um, who was the Sultan in Aladdin. He's always electric when he's on screen as well. And the whole scene with switching him, yeah. like in that whatever, like mind space that he brought her to, I thought was really really cool. Um, I, I, I'm hoping to see a showdown between them again. Um, and also, uh, I think I think it would be really interesting to see them explore a little bit of david's past because you know he was talking about how he was adopted and things like that and in this episode and just to kind of get some sense of like i guess some clarity on on the past seasons because i do feel like there's still almost this idea of like what was real and what wasn't what was in david's head and what wasn't um and i I think kind of getting some idea of like what is a coping mechanism for david and what is really him being controlled by farouk or lenny or whoever it is um, would be really, really interesting. Yeah, I'm, I'm also curious, is Professor X's presence on the show just going to be via those uh, going back in time moments, those flashbacks of sort, or will we actually see Viserys pull up in the present timeline and have an effect on the, the story? Drexies? Could go either way, who knows. Legion Season 3, check it out if you haven't been. Definitely enjoy pretty much anything Noah Hawley puts out right now. Let's talk about Toy Story, another... Pixar ma- uh, masterpiece, I guess, not sitting at ninety eight percent on Rotten Tomatoes. It's it's interesting because for a movie this good, a lot of the conversation surrounding it so far has been that this is a box office flop. So I think there's kind of two topics to talk about here. Not not only oh. the movie. Um, I mean, it still made one hundred and twenty million, but just below expectations for what they were hoping it to be. So I think there's a bit of a discussion around maybe why this movie didn't achieve box office success, success as much as it did with the movie being as good as pretty much everybody says it is why don't we start with what our general thoughts were about the movie and move into maybe why it wasn't as popular did you like toy story 4 yes i did <laughs> no i i liked toy story 4 quite a bit i think i did not have like huge hype levels for the film and i will get into i think how that might have affected the box office overall but Despite the fact that I thought Toy Story 3 was a fantastic conclusion, like the whole rest of the world, it's kind of nice to be back after almost a decade uh, with these characters and these voice actors. But yeah, I, I liked it a lot. I think I think it was a another great conclusion to this story. And once again, pre- presents the, in great Pixar fashion, the existential crises that adults can find when they watch Pixar films that are also for children. So uh, it, it does all it does all the all the all the Pixar things that Pixar is so great at. So uh, did you like it a lot? Yeah, I thought it was really good. Probably not my favorite Toy Story movie, but still a really enjoyable and, and kind of surprising in ways tale because oh, uh, you know they they gave a lot of time to characters that I didn't suspect that they would in terms of especially like Bo Peep, but it, they made this very much like a, a Woody story and. Uh, I would assume this will probably be the last Toy Story movie. That seems to be kind of uh, uh, the thought of a lot of people out there. And if it is, it's, I think it's a good send off. But I, I I really felt like this movie was very funny. 
it was pretty action-packed and it didn't i think like you said it didn't necessarily um have the the emotional highs in a good way of toy story 3 because toy story 3 was almost like traumatic that scene in the incinerator like i still think back to that and just Mm -hmm. do not enjoy that sitting through that but uh the emotional moments in this one were a lot more palatable in my in my opinion i've been reflecting a lot on toy story 3 and i think it's probably my least favorite of the quadrilogy now but i mean they they, they're all they're all so great so i mean who who cares how you rank them i guess (laughs) but i mean yeah bo peep was not in toy story 3 at all right uh and had bringing her back and really fleshing her out as a character really the only side character outside of buzz and woody and i guess jesse to a little lesser extent that's been fleshed out at all to be honest um i thought, I thought she was she was really effective that was, that was great to see also interesting that buzz uh kind of sidelined for about two acts of this film and you wonder how much of that is uh the presence of tim allen as the voice actor not the most popular guy these days he's just because of the things he, he said recently um right and the, th- the thing with toy story 4's existence and we can talk about toy uh, pixar and its uh, barrage of sequels this decade but it's if, if, from what everyone says toy story 4 really only came to be because john lasseter and andrew stanton who directed the legion premiere funny enough they kind of like secretly developed this movie and like basically finished an early script before Pixar even knew about it. And obviously they excised Lasseter from the company eventually, given sexual misconduct allegations. But you wonder if this movie would ever have been attempted if if it didn't have John Lasseter, of course, originally the director of the first two and the original force and face of Pixar in the early 90s and mid-2000s. I mean, he's... You you should deserves all the credit for making toy, uh, Pixar what it what it was and what it is today, you know. Um, and I think what people have been saying about Toy Story 5's potential existence is now that Andrew Stanton has left uh, left left Toy Story following his work on the script and Lasseter, of course is gone now works for Skydance. Uh, is there anyone at Pixar who would really try, uh, like stump for a fifth Toy Story? You know, like there's not a lot of ownership left for the people that are still there, so. It, Interesting, interesting thing to think about. But I mean, did you did you take away any of the uh, negative headlines from the the box office uh, disappointment that was the third highest grossing opening weekend of the year? Did you? Because I, th- I think there is a lot of interesting uh, reasons for that. Even if the movie is still obviously going to be a huge hit, already is. You know, it's a very fascinating movie, both meta and plot wise. Sure. You know, good stuff. Yeah, I think the in terms of the box office issues, I, I buy into the theory about just sequel fatigue. Um, it's it's just like how many times can uh, we get really hyped up to see these? And especially when, uh, you know, we know it's going to be coming out and it's gonna we're going to be able to watch it in our homes, not have to go to the movie theater for most people who don't buy subscriptions uh, and pay, you know, 13 to $20 to sit through a movie plus... 20 more bucks to eat a popcorn drink soda um so in the past where it was like toy stories coming out got to get our kids to see it it's like yeah we'll wait a couple months they can watch these other three movies to tie them over and then when it comes out on netflix or hbo or hulu we'll watch it there um i also 
think, you know, in terms of something like Avengers, um, Star Wars, those are sequels where if you don't go see that right away, you're going to have it spoiled. Who cares about a Toy Story movie getting spoiled? You don't go to Toy Story for the plot and for the reveals and for like the moments that like, you know, whatever's going to happen in the last episode of the trilogy for star Wars, people are going to be talking about immediately. So if you don't see it right away, it's going to be like, all right, you're missing out toy story. It's like, all right, we'll see it later and we'll enjoy it just as much as we could have six months ago. Yeah. No, it's interesting too. Cause I think toy story four ultimately has a very basically unopposed runaway to make all the family kid money at the box office until lion King comes out. Um, so uh, you just you figure kids' movies aren't necessarily appointment viewing like the parents take them when they can. So who knows if this was an issue? And maybe if they release it a weekend earlier for Father's Day, it could, it could have done better. They usually do go with that weekend. But you know, Finding Dory opened about fifteen million more than this a few years ago. Incredibles two just last year made one hundred like eighty nine and went on to gross one point two billion worldwide. Toy Story four obviously is not hitting those marks. Um, I think the, the the reason for that is you know. Incredibles 2 was 13 years in the making. And Finding Dory, Finding Nemo was from, what, 003, 04, whatever it is. Toy Story 3, again, everyone was so satisfied with it that you saw this with the trailers and, like, the the early... It just felt like there was a muted uh, lack of excitement for Toy Story 4. And it wasn't negative buzz the way Aladdin had, which also ended up not mattering at all for the sake of that, that movie, but... You just feel like there wasn't a sense of urgency to go out and see Toy Story 4, which, again, it's funny because we're saying all these things in a negative way, but the movie still is the third highest grossing opening weekend of 2019. Yep. <laughs> and uh, it was opened in the in the, the most theaters ever for a uh, animated film and the biggest global launch for an animated film. So quite the success. But, it, again, it's interesting to see another sequel not meet expectations. I mean, like the, the the forecasts were very high for this, and even the modest ones, it's still missed by like twenty million. So, not even uh, Disney, not even Pixar is immune to what seems to be a waning theater going experience. But I think I think that's enough on the non aspects of the film. Just let you have more to just add. Just a quick, uh, I want to see how good you are with this. Um, Toy Story, how much? Uh, Toy Story three, how much do you think it grossed in the box office? I know that Incredibles two. Finding Dory and Toy Story 3 were all billion-dollar yep. movies worldwide. Yeah. I know Toy Story 4, actually, the opening weekend, if you adjust for inflation, was less than Toy Story 3. Yeah. But I'm sure you got the exact number. Yeah, it, you were, I mean, it's just a, right over a billion. Um, it's, that that is kind of mind-blowing to me, just because when you think about Toy Story 4, maybe we'll get there, got quite a long road. And, um, you know, it does have a couple weeks, like you said, uh, pretty... Um, pretty free of any other movies i mean i'm sure for that like i mean people children who saw toy story 3 in theaters maybe when they were five years old are now 14 now so they're probably going to want to go see spider-man when it comes out and that will definitely cut into some of that like young teen uh, interest um i don't know how many of them are going to see repeat showings of toy story 4 anyway um but i i, right. I it has a lot of runway to try to get up there um, but still, like you said, yep. uh, box office down. Um, and we say every summer, at least for the past, like probably five or six, uh, movies are dying. And then it seems to always kind of pick back up. But this might be uh, this might be a, a trend to worry about. Um, going back to the film, though, and things I, I was really impressed with 
the animation and there's been a lot of uh, videos about it but the animation this is just unbelievable yeah. and especially when you compare it to like toy story one um and, you know the the image i've seen a lot of is the cat who's in the antique shop in this one compared to the dog from the first toy story it's uh, like sure. so unbelievably uh so much better the animation of this and bo peep also has been getting a lot of attention in terms of how her glow up and uh I just think the animation in these Pixar films is just unbelievable. One of the mo- greatest achievements probably in, in like modern film in a lot of ways. Um, I also really thought Bo Peep just as a character in general was really interesting and brought about a lot of uh, interesting plot uh, questions of like meaning, finding happiness, letting go of things, uh, really driving Woody's character arc in this film uh forward and just thought she was a delight as well um what other things stood out to you about the film i think what's getting a lot of love from the critics is is forky forky's presence in the show which is or the movie which which is funny because forky's relative arc and purpose for the story basically wraps up halfway through the movie and he's voiced by tony hale doing a great buster a jace per- voice performance Trash. Forky's. Trash. <laughs> yeah. Very relatable <laughs> for many people hearing I'm trash. Uh, but Forky's presence in the show and his early uh, existential crisis, you know, there's a lot, a lot of adult themes you can take from him, whether it's creationism and, and, and purpose and direction. And it, it relates to Woody in, in a smart way. And, I think that's always just been impressive about the best Pixar movies is that you can dig deep into the meaning if you want to. You don't have to to enjoy the movie. And that's certainly, once again, the case here. But yeah, I thought Forky just was impressive because it's, it's, a, new, it's a new wrinkle to the, the movie. And it foreshadows the journey Woody will go on in the movie where he's struggling to determine what his purpose now mm-hmm. is you know, as a toy that's not as needed as he once was and has also done his, did his time, put his dues in, you know, whatever. Um, So that was basically my favorite thing. I thought, you know, the way it ends, obviously the hits you in a feels moment, Mm -hmm. obviously it doesn't compare to the Toy Story 3 ending. No one one would say (laughs) say that. But I think having... Woody and Buzz get that send off and immediately following that up with a kid getting reunited with his parents. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just kind of effective, effective Pixar at its best. And it's, uh, you know, very few animated films, even ones that try and be adult, like say the Lego movies. Um, very few animated films or films in general can even, uh, you know, say they can uh, uh, balance the scales this way. So it's just, uh, it, it, I don't want to say it's more of the same. That sounds like I'm being very generic, but it's just, it, it's more of that greatness in a, a new way. I think Forky is really the reason that it works. Yeah. But I mean, what, what else stood out to you besides, you know, the glow up from Bo <laughs> and the uh, great, great uh, uh, screen time she has for the first time? Really. Yeah, I thought Christina Hendricks as Gabby Gabby was very mm-hmm. uh very well done because she really is very menacing in that first like I don't know half of the movie, um, and then that let maybe that that third act you get to see a kind of a little bit more of the softer side and it feels like a very like fleshed out villain for the movie in a lot of senses. Um, I also think the 
the mannequins she has with her were like really creepy um and i hated i oh, hated yeah. their presence but i felt like that kind of added this nice yeah <laughs> nice sense of horror and when, when they tried to talk oh god i hated that so much um mm-hmm. well done. I, I thought the action scenes were really awesome and i mean shout out nuke kaboom uh keanu reeves just continuing to be the best part of the summer of keanu man. everything he does at this point is fantastic but i really enjoyed nuke kaboom especially his final jump uh where he closed his eyes and just went for it freaking hilarious um yeah and i feel like uh speaking of like something being hilarious they really did the funny moments really well like uh wanting to send the dad to jail to like stall um was i I thought a really funny (laughs) bit also giving the dinosaur who i believe is i I think it's aaron shawl right who voices the dinosaur uh the uh job of being the navigation voice is just hysterical just a a great a great um a great choice so i I thought the the funny moments of this were really great you already talked about tony hale who i thought was really funny as forky as well and even that like post credit scene where he's like, I'm going to explain everything to you. <laughs> the first question is, how am I alive? <laughs> he's like, I don't know. Like just such a good uh, extra credit scene for sure. Um, there, there's a lot to like about this movie. Anything we didn't touch on that you think we should be shouting out? Uh, a lot of good bits. I thought the the buzz light, your inner voice yeah. bit is set up really well and then actually used in a, in, in a funny and effective way throughout uh, the buzz scenes. That was great. And then um, Key and Peele's presence yeah. as a, uh, D- ducky it, uh, and bunny something and bunny yeah they're uh, uh just a, a new element a new new dynamic you know as toys that have a different experience again it's, it's simple simple conceit but we, we've seen bits of it before and i think if you want to again dive deep into into the toy story uh machinations it's like not everyone has had the same experience as woody and the yep. gang and you get a little bit of that once again for the guys that are carnival toys you know it's uh it's it's smartly well done and even if you don't want to dig that deep it's key and peel so they're really fucking funny and the their their the shining moment of course is the bit where they try and uh woo the the grandma in the antique mm-hmm. shop and the, that, that montage of sorts hilarious yeah so. and uh, just to kind of couple off your point a little bit about like a different experience um i'm forgetting maybe you mentioned it already of uh someone leaving uh because of some uh issues and some possible controversy but this is a much more diverse uh toy story movie than past ones have been and just in terms of the people walking yep. around um in terms of you know i think this is the first black voice actors they've had if i'm if i'm recalling correctly uh for pixar or toy, for story? toy story obviously yeah, yeah. incredibles has Samuel right Jackson. um and just i i think this idea of like diversity and bringing in uh, other perspectives in terms of this toy world was just really smart and added a whole nother element to it. So shout out to them for uh, being, being very 2019 or at least trying to be more 2019 than. Uh, yeah. And, and that's kind of been the uh, underlying thing in the industry is that while Pixar gets all these deserved accolades from, from parents and adult film critics alike, not, not to mention the kids who watch the movies, uh, Lasseter's presence throughout the studio for so many years really contributed to an overall uh, boys club atmosphere at the studio, mm-hmm. which has you know thousands of employees, of course. But Rashida Jones left the early script writing for Toy Story 4 
over just the you know yep. the Lassiter's energy and the fact that the only woman director they ever hired was for Brave. They fired her. Um, and, you know, having Coco in 2017 and now Toy Story 4 actually showing some stuff, it do- does feel like uh, there's at least a bit of a new, uh, a, new, a new chapter at Pixar. Perhaps that's more of the Disney influence since they've taken over the studio years ago. Who knows? Um, but better late than never, I guess, right? Absolutely. Um, Toy Story 4. Uh, go see it. Uh, maybe help out the box office a little bit if you have yeah, the money. Please do. Um, any anything people should be watching or listening to this coming weekday before we talk next time. By the time you're hearing this, the Rich Brian album will probably be out. We've big fan of him. We reviewed his Amen album last year. Excited for that. Also on Friday we get a new Black Keys record. Pretty exciting following up the Rock and Tours that we're going to get more actual mm-hmm. rockers coming back. I'm looking forward to that. Also, I'm very excited for Banana, the collaborative album from Freddie Gibbs and the producer Mad Lib. Uh, these guys have a great track record thus far. Obviously, Mad Lib's a legend. So I'm excited about for that. And then uh, yesterday, the Danny Boyle film about the the, the the guy, one guy who remembers the Beatles and takes advantage as a result uh, will also be out. So Plenty of stuff to talk about. Spider-Man Home, uh, Far From Home, releasing early for the holiday weekend on Tuesday. So plenty of stuff as usual. Plenty sir. of stuff. Um, also, if you are really digging the uh, Mannequin Pussy album, the Rockin' Tours album, you're excited for the Black Keys, listen to Black Midi. Just released their debut album. Oh, yeah. Um, UK-based, guitar-driven band. Uh, Going to be good listen. Got positive reviews so far. And potentially, we'll also be talking about The Last Black Man in San Francisco, if uh, there's any showings by me, I'm hoping. Uh, so, a lot to talk about. Uh, can't wait. Uh, subscribe, sound, soundcloud.com slash nostalgiapod. Any way you uh, want to catch the pod, especially help out our YouTube channel by subscribing there. Share us with friends. We appreciate you. We'll see you next week. Peace out.